Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging, believing it's not just about living longer, it's about living healthier longer. Providing medical diagnostics to help catch deadly or debilitating diseases early. You can learn more on proactive screenings at virtualimagingatl.com. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Georgia is not alone. There's so many states when it comes to staffing shortages within its hospital workforce. Now, the state has relied on temporary workers, but at a cost. Kevin Tanner is the commissioner of Georgia's Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. Here's what he told state lawmakers last month. My priority is to replace all the Jackson health care workers with our own staff. Again, it's expensive even today at $1.6 million per week, the majority of which pays for nurses at a cost of $1.1 million per week. No doubt that the Jackson staff has been a lifeline, but we want to eventually replace those with our own staff, not just because it's more cost effective, but they're more committed to the mission of DBHDD. Meanwhile, while there are ongoing staff shortages, we're going to focus on what additional Mental health resources are available for adults and youth. From respite centers here in Georgia with no cost for adults to a school-based mental health service program in DeKalb County Public Schools. We'll talk about all that. Those conversations are coming up. But first, this happy crossover crossover day. It's a key deadline if bills want a chance to become law this year, as we hear from WABE Sam Greenglass. Bills have to pass either the House or the Senate by the end of today to move forward the session. If not, they're pretty much toast. So lawmakers will likely be at work late into the night, scrambling to vote on literally dozens of bills. But one disclaimer here, even after today, lawmakers can strip out the text of their bill and glue it into another related bill that did pass and cross over to the other chamber. That's called using a vehicle. But I kind of think of them as ghost bills that pop back up when you least expect them. If you want to track where key bills stand, we've got a handy bill tracker online. Find it at wabe.org slash 2023 bill tracker. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Ah, yes, it's very handy, too. In other legislative news, the Georgia Senate is set to consider a bill today that would create a new school voucher program. The measure would let parents use $6,000 of state money for educational services, including private school tuition. Supporters say the bill gives families more options. But Francisco Rue with the Georgia Youth Justice Coalition for Action says, yo, public money should go toward public schools. We could give students across Georgia $6,000 to go to private schools, or we could literally just pour that money into existing public schools and make sure that those public schools are fully funded and have all the resources that they need. Georgia already has a tax credit scholarship program and a voucher plan for students with special needs. And again, critics of the bill point out public money should go toward public schools. Atlanta police say they've arrested 23 so-called cop city protesters over the weekend who authorities claim attacked officers and destroyed construction equipment at the future site of Atlanta's police and fire training center. Now, according to APD, yesterday a group used the cover of a peaceful protest to conduct what they call a coordinated attack. Police allege the group changed into all-black clothing and and threw Molotov cocktails, fireworks, and bricks at officers. APD notes that officers used non-lethal enforcement to conduct arrests. It's the first in a planned wave of protests for this week, and APD is asking for the rest to remain peaceful. This comes after more than a year of clashes between law enforcement and protesters. In January, an environmental activist, Emmanuel Tehran, was shot and killed during a clearing operation at the site. Georgia native Rory Bridges is celebrating his upcoming induction into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame as we hear from WABE digital editor Patrick Saunders. Roy Bridges piloted one NASA mission to space in 1985. One of the most marvelous things is actually looking at the Earth from 175 miles above. It's a beautiful place. Bridges went on to serve as director of both the Kennedy Space Center and NASA's Langley Research Center. 
The U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame notified the Gainesville High School graduate about his induction last month. It was a very big surprise. Uh, you know, I'm fully retired at 79 years old, and I flew into space and when I was 42. <laughs> Obviously, it had something to do with my later assignments at NASA. Bridges will be inducted alongside veteran astronaut and U.S. Senator Mark Kelly in May. Patrick Saunders, WABE News. That is pretty cool. But finally... If he makes it, they can throw the ball down and get some type of a quick shot. Burden. He does. Tap to run. That's it. It's over. Kennesaw State wins the A-Sun Championship. And they're going to the NCAA Tournament. Well, get ready for these sports cliches because the Kennesaw State men's basketball team is going to the big dance. Yes, the Isles beat Liberty, capturing their first ever A-Sun Conference tournament crown, and they will play in the field of 64. As for who the Isles will play in the first round of the tournament, well, that will be decided this Sunday when the entire field is revealed. Again, congratulations, Kennesaw State. Look, anything can happen. Just ask Mercer back in 2014 when they were a 14th seed and they beat Duke. A three seed, so go Kennesaw State. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. There's the latest study by the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It concludes 44% of adults in Georgia struggle with some symptoms of anxiety or depression. Nearly 5 million people in the state live in a community that, that does not have enough mental health professionals. Meanwhile, thousands of Georgians also say they don't receive the care because simply they can't afford it. But there's a little-known program funded by the state that provides a calm place to recover for free. Georgia's five respite centers, including one located in Decatur, provides a week of free food, housing, and peer-to-peer recovery. I'm going to find out more from the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network. I'm joined by Interim Executive Director Chris Johnson and Administrative Coordinator Melissa Kazakidis. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hi, we are glad to be here. We are here. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for joining us. Let's back up a little bit, and and Melissa, I'll start with you. You know, I know those numbers, the statistics like that aren't lost on you, that it's estimated nearly 5 million people in this state live in a community that does not have enough mental health professionals. Absolutely, and not enough resources. Mm -hmm. What about you, Chris? Um, the numbers to me aren't that surprising. I'm a Georgia native and, you know, I know how historically we have dealt with mental illness and mental health challenges overall. You know, I got to go to Milledgeville as a young person Mm -hmm. and, you know, the images I saw there still haunt me Mm -hmm. and they're one of the driving forces behind the work we do. And for our listeners who may not be familiar, you're talking about that was the mental, the state mental hospital, correct? Right. Central State Hospital in Milledgeville was once the largest asylum in the world. It held over uh, 12,000 people at one point and over 25,000 people are buried there. Chris, if you don't mind, for our listeners, because I I like to treat every segment as if there's some people listening that that aren't aware of what we're talking about. Can you share, you say those images, they they haven't left you. And and I hate to ask you to relive, relive that, but if you choose to, can you just share some of the things that you saw? Yeah, it was, my father was a JC in the Georgia JCs, and it was, it became a family tradition of ours to drive up to Milledgeville from Dublin, which is where I was born, and deliver Christmas presents that had been collected in the community to the children there, and they would bring the children out into like a fenced-in yard. The children were wearing mostly just flimsy nightgowns and things. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but they were all heavily medicated, Thorazine, who knows? And it was freezing. So, you know, these children who were, you know, shivering, they brought them out to like, so they could say thank you for these gifts. 
and it was just horrific. It was like something out of a wartime movie, uh, something out of peacetime United States. And, you know, it really, it was a threat in Georgia when I was growing up. But, you know, if you don't watch it, they're going to put you in Milledgeville. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after seeing that, that threat became very real for me, you know, and it's just never left. How much of that fuels has been a fuel for you doing the work that you do? A lot, really. I mean, it has. I, whenever I'm having conversations with legislators about, you know, some of the legislation that's been pushing through um, that limits or that gives more power to authorities to involuntarily hospitalize people. I remind them of that time in our history because, you know, they like to say it's ancient history, but it's not people who are taken in under involuntary um, commitment laws. The new ones that are going to be passed, it looks like, if we're not able to pull back on them, um, their history dating back to the 1950s or 40s, mm-hmm. you know, if they happen to still be alive, can be used against them mm-hmm. in determining whether or not they should be involuntarily committed. And I think the state should be held to the same standard. Mm-hmm. And how much, and I'm going to get to Melissa in a second, but Chris, also how much or how far you feel like we've come as a nation, um, if you want to also oppose that to here in Georgia, that the stigma you know, around mental health, it has changed or is changing. And obviously, since the pandemic, there is more of a spotlight on making sure that, look, if you don't have the resources, we're, we're trying to get there. Yeah, I think, you know, the change, the overall, there's been a sea change in attitude for sure. You know, like celebrities and athletes, you know, 20 years ago would never have come out with some of the stories we're hearing today. Even legislators on the Senate and House floor have shared personal stories and stories about their families, you know, how they handle like mental illness in their families, how mental health challenges are dealt with on a daily basis. They talk about it. And so that's helpful. And, you know, again, a sea change. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the individual level, the one-on-one, like, how are we going to fund this? Mm-hmm. That is, you know, as you say, where we can't reach agreement in Georgia. Mm. Melissa, what do you want to share with our listeners about when you made the decision or, or how the decision was made for you to to reach out and get the resources you needed? Or were you trying and just simply couldn't until you found something? And we'll get to that in a moment. Well, I had repeatedly kept trying from, um, and I'm I'm in recovery, long-term recovery from uh, mental health concerns and uh, substance abuse. Mm-hmm. So I, I was continually, continually trying, um, but I finally, you know, just stuck around and, and started to listen and, and resources were very, very few and far between. Um, and when I, I actually found the, the peer support wellness and respite center in Moultrie, Georgia, mm-hmm. and they really encouraged me, empowered me, um, gave me so much hope that, you know, there was another side to this. Um, you know, I didn't have to be in that same place of, of darkness. And I mean, I could do something else with my life besides mm-hmm be on social security disability and um, do something productive and meaningful and feel purpose. Um, So I use that center. So this center being available, the resources and avenue that you have a support network before you got to the center. Um, Yeah, I did. Um, But it was, it was small. It was in a, in a small community, Moultrie, Georgia is very Mm -hmm. rural. Yeah. Um, but when I went to the center, I found out there were more centers, um, across Georgia and, you know, the, the staff there being CPSs, they really provided me with a lot of hope and encouragement that I could be a CPS or a certified peer specialist and do the same thing that they were doing. And eventually I got a job there and it, it was amazing. I, and still like, I have to pinch myself. Like, oh my goodness, I'm in Decatur. <laughs> like now I mo- I moved from that small town mm-hmm. up here and it's just incredible to me. Chris, what do you all do at, at this consumer, at the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network? 
And then I want to get into the centers because I think a lot of folks, and I even got an email here that said I didn't even know this existed, but let's back up a little bit. The Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network, what are you all tasked with doing? We are an independent nonprofit. We were founded about 32 years ago now. Um, we were founded by 30 consumers of state services who were not happy with the services they were receiving. Right, So they got together in Tucker, Georgia, and everybody threw in a dollar and they created what's called the pipeline newsletter, um, which is actually about to lose its funding for the first time in 30 years. Um, and they published this newsletter so people around the state could communicate with each other. I don't know if you are old enough to remember, but we used to have to pay for long distance in state, right? So making those calls. I, I, I'm old enough to remember my father saying, get off the phone if it's long distance. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, you know, people, lots of people today don't know, like Melissa never lived through a lot of that, but, you know, it was a part of our life. So, you know, having this newsletter was incredibly important to them. And actually, since I've been the director of communications with the network, subscriptions have gone up. It's been fun. But we are, have charged ourselves and our board of directors have charged us with, you know, improving the lives of people who live with mental health concerns by giving them opportunities and hope. You know, and we can help provide those things by, you know, being a voice at the legislature, by showing up and, you know, being present and showing them, mm-hmm. you know, like Melissa was just saying, you know, being the example. Have you been encouraged, though, especially since last legislation, the last legislative session on the late Speaker David Ralston, who had championed the Mental Health Parity Act, which now we have on the books as law and some additions for this year. But are you are you optimistic that then there will be even more in terms of resource? Because it sounds like and I hear this a lot and it's not it shouldn't be shocking to anybody. It is about funding, funding that's needed for these resources. How optimistic are you that there will be more coming online, Chris? Um, There will be lots more funding coming online. Where it will go is another story. We're actually losing funding right now. Where? Losing funding where? um, We're actually losing funding in our respite centers. And Mm -hmm. um, we've been told that in fiscal year uh, 24, we are going to be experiencing um, a change in our budget. It's not being described as a cut, but a change. Um, Some COVID dollars were never restored to us. Um, They were supplemented by those uh, federal ARPA funds Mm -hmm. and those have run out now. So like for fiscal year 23, we received like 2.17 million from the state to operate all five centers. Mm -hmm. And in fiscal year 24, that number is going to be 1.4 million. So that means probably two of our five centers will have to close or we will have to reduce services, like not have overnight stays, like not actually have respite, but have sort of day centers. Let's back up right now. There are five respite centers. And as I read coming into this segment that, you know, it doesn't it's no cost for people. Um, how, how many folks would you say you all service with these five centers on an annual basis? Um, it really depends. Melissa, you could actually, Melissa ran a center. She would have those numbers off the top of her head better than I do. Melissa? Um, I know monthly. Monthly, we would serve about 48 peers in respite. That's mm-hmm. seven nights. Um, and that's seven nights in a, in their own room. It's private. It's mm-hmm. a very beautiful and tranquil, you know, uh, environment. And in mm-hmm. Like when I first started going, it was it was like, why doesn't everyone know about this? Why doesn't you know, I can't believe there are not more of these or people aren't talking about this. Melissa, do you have to be referred or can anyone just call and say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. And can you all do you have space? Do you have room for me? Well, yeah, anyway, it's self-referred. Um, it's a self-directed environment and anyone that self-identifies as moving toward recovery from a mental health challenge can be a peer at the center and they just have to go sign up and have a, a model introduction with a staff member there. And it, it's just a basic run through of, you know, what we do there and who we are. And it, it's and, and then they can, you know, go on the list to get into respite. And in terms of the staff, and, and Melissa, either you or Chris can answer this, you have peer-to-peer counseling, but are there other certified professionals there? And and I imagine maybe there are some, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, some needs that you all can't meet. Well, 
um it, it's it's a alternative to like a medical uh clinical environment mm -hmm. so it's it's an alternative for people that you know have been through that clinical treatment like me and just wanted something different okay and it, it for some people not to tell me what I needed, you know, just to sort of support me where I was. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and that's what we did. We provided support. Um, and we had a, a warm line where peers could call and get support through that, come into respite, have 24 seven support. Um, and if people were on medication, that's you know, it's, it's self, um, directed. So they would bring their own medication. They're in mm -hmm. charge of that. We don't need to know about it. But to, to answer your question, no, there are no other licensed clinicians mm -hmm. there. And right. we can connect folks with folks if they want to get help. So you can do that. Center, but, you know. So Chris, let me ask you this. How do you all measure then the effectiveness of, of the, the respite centers? I mean, obviously Someone listening says, "Well, Melissa probably is the met is the main is a metric. It's the human metric right there that you could use, but for funding, I, I'm I'm curious. Do you all need to have again because folks love data? Do you need to have some type of of data to give a conclusion in terms of these respite centers are needed and they work? We do provide data to the state on a monthly basis, and um, one of the things we look at is like." when is the last time you required hospitalization? Like is hospitalization a part of your past? And like, how frequently have you been recently, right? So that's a huge metric because that's like the biggest dollar sign I think the state sees when they're talking about hospitalization versus respite. And I mean, for us, it's, for us, obviously, it's not about just the dollar amount. It's about the, qual the quality of life people live. Um, because you know, when you're grateful for the life you have, you try to hang on to it. And I think that's true for all of us. The, I personally think that's true for all of us. Um, the other metrics that we look at um, relate to like homelessness, connection with family, connection with um, family of choice, like all of those things. Like, where are you? Mm -hmm. And where are these centers located, Chris? We know Decatur. Um, there's Decatur. There is Cartersville. There's Cleveland. There is Moultrie and Augusta, where we opened last year. And is there a model in, in other states that have these respite centers? And, and has that been helpful or could it be helpful in you all lobbying to get more funding to have these? to Because obviously five in Georgia is not enough based on the statistics I read coming into this segment. So where's your, I guess, where's your lifeline in the state legislature for you? Um, you know, I don't think no one questions the value of them. They just question who should be paying for them because from a state perspective, they feel like it, you know, it solves so many county problems that the county should be paid for these things. Mm -hmm. And in different states, they are funded different ways. It's just a matter of, you know, where is it coming down? We feel like we may have to look at a hybrid model moving forward because, you know, having all of our funding coming from the state, you know, probably isn't sustainable long term if you know without a commitment from the state to you know fund the model long term we don't know what um the future of them will be but we know how important they are they're they're an evidence-based practice they're you know the science is there um it's just a matter of who wants to pay to make the science work go ahead melissa and be, being able as a previous director of decatur I know talking to many, many, many peers, we asked, what would you do if you didn't come into respite? Mm -hmm. And they always said, I would have gone to the emergency room. I would have called GCAL or the Georgia Crisis and Access Line. Mm -hmm. um, I would have uh, went in, you know, I, I was, you know, feeling suicidal and, you know, you, you all supported me through that. So I know peers were just so grateful to have this space to go to and have the support around them just where they were and we you know it's participation is completely voluntary there mm -hmm. so they can leave anytime they want and having those choices are so important melissa let me ask you this did you immediately know when the first time you arrived that this was something different that that and you you wanted to stick with it and then how long did you feel how long were you there and did you feel like this is the in addition to the the other services you had had but that this was so key for you in your recovery on your road 
yeah, like I'm tearing up because I knew it right away. Like I knew it was different. It was a place where I could just be who I was and I wasn't judged walking in that door. I wasn't, you know, penalized or no one asked me like, where are you going? What are you doing? And you need this, you need that. They weren't about me being a problem. They, they wanted me to, you know, grow and it, and I knew it was different. I knew it, the environment is a completely different, different place from a clinical environment, which I'm not bashing because I mean, I have my own, you know, medical things that I do for psychiatric purposes, but this is different. And the support is what I needed to stay in recovery and keep moving forward. Chris, without this, with the slashing, the the, the slashing and funding, and you said, and and, I'm going to back up for a moment and, and Melissa continued success with, for you as well. But Chris, with this funding slashing, as you all call it, you don't want to close any of these respite centers. But you said you're gonna have, you may have to scale back. What does scale back look like? What does that mean? Um, the only way the math really works would be for at least three of them not to offer overnight stays, like not to offer respite. They would essentially become community clubhouses for people living with mental health concerns, which definitely have value. And if I could put one in every county in Georgia, we would. Um, But we'd also put a respite center in every county in Georgia, or most of them, because most everyone needs one to scale. Fulton County needs one more than anybody. And, you know, again, the state doesn't want to pay for a respite center in Fulton County. Fulton County doesn't want to pay for a respite center. You know, it's the idea that, because I was on the Fulton County Mental Health and Justice Task Force years ago and had been working with the Policing and Alternatives Diversion Initiative Mm -hmm. as a board member. And, you know, we see, like, you know, until there is affordable housing for these folks, like, we're going to have systemic problems. And so, you know, housing is an even bigger issue, but for short term right now, we can help Georgians stay out of hospitals just by funding these beds and these respite centers. And I hope the state comes around and helps us with that. So, again, DeKalb, Cleveland, Moultrie, where were the other two? Cartersville and Augusta. Mm. And so, you know, in the rural part of the state, they're desperately needed. And then we do not have one in Fulton County. Even Judge McBurney, when he came out to see the center indicator, he said, we need one of these all over Fulton County. How can we scale it up? And we said, we'll do it. You get us the funding. We'll make the new model work. But it's not there. Well, Chris, let me ask you, so are you all eligible for other types of, of grant and, and funding federally or, or, or any other type of health and wellness from NAIH or, or any, anywhere? Yeah, we are. Until the pandemic, we didn't face these sort of existential problems on an ongoing basis. Um, we really didn't. And we lost our longtime director, Sherry Jenkins Tucker, who was a national, internationally renowned leader in pure mental health um, last summer. And the whole organization, we are reevaluating who we are, what our goals are. But, you know, we all agree at our annual conference last year, instead of having a celebration, we had we paused. Mm-hmm. to regroup and get everyone's input. What do we want to do moving forward? And everyone agreed, you know, the peer support that we've been doing, the rest that we've been providing, the training that we've been providing to certify peer specialists, you know, across the state to help people in their community, support people in their community. Um, that's what we want to do. So, you know, moving forward, we're going to keep that going. Mm-hmm. And finding alternative funding is going to be a critical piece of that. As we wrap up, and Melissa, I'll start with you. It's crossover day, state lawmakers. If you haven't had a chance to tell them the importance of these respite centers or or to our listeners, what do you want folks to know? Uh, Well, I definitely want people to know there is is so much hope. I hold so much hope for recovery from mental health challenges and substance abuse challenges. Um, I know anyone can do it because I'm right here right now. And and a a huge critical piece of my recovery still depends on wellness in respite centers um, from the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network. And without them, 
I mean, I just couldn't imagine being where I am right now. And that's why I, I continue to be at Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network, because I believe in that so much. I would I dedicate my life to it. And it's critical. It's absolutely critical. And Chris, I'll give you the last word. The one thing I want legislators to know is that we are Georgians. You know, we cross every demographic, we cross every community. There's someone right now who needs help and most of them don't have access to it. So when you have the opportunity to do the right thing and provide that support in a way that makes economic sense, there's no reason not to do it. Chris, Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for what you all are able to do to help so many people. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It's estimated more than 10 million children worldwide lost a caregiver or a parent to COVID-19. Meaning the effects of the COVID-19 crisis, well, yeah, it was far-reaching, and that includes affecting the mental health of so many of those kids. Here in Georgia, more than 200,000 kids say they struggle with anxiety or depression. That's all according to data gathered by the Annie E. Casey Foundation for their 2022 Kids Count data book, which we always talk about here on Closer Look. As we continue our program today, which focuses on mental health, we're going to turn now to serving Georgia's youth. As youth continue to navigate the ongoing impacts of the pandemic and local school districts are working to provide resources to help them. The U.S. Department of Education Office of Elementary and Secondary Education recently announced awards to the DeKalb County School District in the amount of $2.9 million for its Safe and Supportive Schools School-Based Mental Health Services grants for the year 2023 through 2028. So join me now to talk more about this grant and the current state of student and staff mental health amid the pandemic, which is still with us, is Kimberly Franklin. She's coordinator for the Psychological Services Department at DeKalb County School District and the president of the Georgia Association of School Psychologists. Kimberly, welcome. Thank you for taking the time. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me here. I'm so pleased to be on the show. Well, we appreciate what you do, just like with the segment before. And I'll ask you the same question I ask folks. You know, when you hear these statistics, it's not lost on you. We talked about adults earlier in the segment. Now we're focusing on youth. Even the numbers that I gave, I imagine there are many numbers that we don't know of because it has not been documented. That is true. Um, um, After the pandemic, we saw um, serious concerns coming through with our students once they returned to the building. Even before they returned into the school building, they were experiencing um, concerns at home. And one thing about schools, you know, we're kind of a, we can capture and see exactly what's happening with kids and try to intervene um, in person. We had to think differently when we were shut down for the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we had to come up with different ways of being able to track our students, find out what's going on. Um, just to give you some examples, the social work department created an emergency helpline so that kids who are in crisis could reach out to the social workers and they could physically drive out to the homes and see exactly what was going on. My department, um, the school psychologist, we provided virtual small group counseling Mm -hmm. and we also did individual counseling, pulling students in, trying to see how we can offer some additional support. The school counselors reached out also contacting students, doing small group counseling, checking in with the teachers. Mm -hmm. We also checked in with our staff because just like the students were struggling, we had employees struggling also. And so um, it was compounded um, with the effects. And then when we were able to reenter, we could still see some of the gaps and some of the concerns Mm -hmm. that we're still trying to address today. And so with those gaps that you all are still trying to address today, I want to back up for a moment because we know so much was made on from an academic standpoint. Okay, how do we address the learning gap 
in in that pathway for kids through academics. But then you say, how do we now address and assess the mental health services part of this? And, and you know, often we hear about wraparound services that so many students need. And it's, it's not just you know, I think maybe people have a perception that it's these type of kids or these kids from this type of district, which there could be some different optics around. But the bottom line is that if you were a kid trying to navigate through the pandemic, you know, where you were isolated from your, your friends and, 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 you know, it's bad enough for adults who try to to shift and adjust. Imagine this for kids. Right. Right. It, it was a serious struggle for the students and just transitioning back into the building. There were some students that had had never been in the building before. And then we had kids transitioning from elementary to middle, from middle to high and so forth. So we had to put a lot of supports um, in place to offer our students. We started with whole group and whole group support coming from the counselors, which is what they do. Um, The school psychologists, we pull in smaller groups, those kids that may need a little bit more individualized support or more small group support to model. Um, And that's how we were able to come through and offer those additional supports. Um, the teachers in did referrals to us. We have parents reaching out. I have parents call me all the time mm-hmm. looking for ways to get some assistance for their students. And in the school district, we have a process that's called, we have a multi-tiered process. It's mm-hmm. multi-tiered systems of support. And it's not only for addressing academics, but it's also dr- addressing social emotional concerns too. And that multi-tiered support model looks at the, looks at all children. And we go through a tiers to your process. I want to back up then because my next okay. question is, do you have enough staffing? I just talked to we talking about staffing shortages, <laughs> you know, throughout the state for mental health resources for adults. What's your staffing situation like? Is there a school psychologist for every school or are there clusters? How does that work? The very good question. I have a shortage and there's a shortage in the state of Georgia for school psychologists and the DeKalb school district. We have a shortage too. We're, we're not struggling like some other school districts. I have to admit we are doing very well, but every year I'm having vacancies. And that was kind of the reasoning behind this grant. We're trying to um, recruit, train and retain school psychologists. We're trying to get more people to get into our field and it will come and help out in the school setting. And um, the shortage is significantly impacting our students. My school psychologists have three to four schools a piece. And um, so they may be at your building once a week. And so if you think about it, it's only four times a month. Um, there are kids that need more help more than that. So my vision and the reason for um, leading toward this grant is so that we can offer more support to our students in the Cab County School District so- by hiring psychologists. So in DeKalb County, you all have uh, how many schools from from elementary to high school and, and, and academies? How many y'all have about? We, we have 138 schools. We're the third largest school district in mm-hmm. Georgia. We have over 93,000 students. And so the ratio for us, we're pretty one psychologist to about 2,100 students. That, state- that is, that is, wow. Yes, yes. It's, it is astounding. The recommendation from the National Association of School Psychologists is one psychologist to 500 students. My goal is to try to at least get us down to something that's a little bit more manageable um, and reducing the psychologists from having three to four schools down to, to at least two schools so that we can be more present in the building and offer more additional support for the students. It, it's, it's a dire need. And um, we are most definitely wanting to be there and address our young students. Wow, 2,100 per school psychologist. Right, one, one psychologist to 2,100 students. And the average for the state is one psychologist to 2,400. And so for the state of Georgia, you know, that's something that, that also needs to be addressed. Um, as the president of GASP, I've been trying to work on getting that before our legislator, legislators to try to get our numbers reduced. And that boils down to funding. And so um, our funding number that one 2,400 has been that way since 1987, back when I was in high school. And so mm. now we're still operating on that same model from 1987 to 2023. And we really, really need to look at bringing more school psychologists here, reducing that funding ratio so that mm-hmm. school districts can hire 
more psychologists. <laughs> you should you see these emails <laughs> coming in. Let's talk about this grant because it, 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 it's going to help a little bit. But there, there, I believe there are three primary objectives of this grant that you all have received. And listen, you know, someone hears a number 2.9 million. But for five years, you know, what what will that actually get you in terms of let's start with staffing? Okay, so first part of the grant is the recruiting, recruitment. So I'm trying to recruit people to the state of Georgia and also especially to the Cab County School District. So we are having recruitment initiatives where we're going to the conferences where school psychologists are in attendance, trying to get people to move to Georgia, move to DeKalb, identifying that DeKalb is within the metro area so that people know exactly where we are. <laughs> like, well, what's, because, they say, what's DeKalb? <laughs> right, right, right. They're not really sure where we are, but I'm like, we're in the metro Atlanta area, so... It's not too far from Atlanta, but um, we and we are the third largest district. So trying to get people here to come and do that. And so that's part of it. We're also trying to set up an informational recruitment part for um, since we're doing this in collaboration with Georgia State University Mm -hmm. with getting educators who may be interested in going back to school to become a school psychologist or reaching out to the universities within the area, specifically focusing on historically black colleges and universities. We're really trying to increase the, the diversity in this field. And so that's part of the recruitment part, having informational workshops and then offering that training, which comes with our collaboration with Georgia State University um, because they have a school psychology training program. And we will help with um, stipends to fund some of the people who may want to go back and get these degrees. And then trying to retain my staff, retain the psychologists who are here um, so they're not wanting to go and leave the state um, to make our salary somewhat competitive. Um, but to train them so that we can get them to a manageable state of having two schools, which is what everybody wants, mm-hmm. to be able to to reach and work with students. That's our first goal and not feel overwhelmed. Right now, they're slightly overwhelmed and I'm trying to keep everyone happy. So um, this is going to be over five years and um, it's going to directly help with our training mm-hmm. to get us all additional professional development training and um, counseling up in our counseling skills. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Kimberly Franklin. She's the coordinator for the Psychological Services Department for the Cab County School District and the president of the Georgia Association of School Psychologists. And we're talking about a $2.9 million grant, Safe and Supportive Schools. It's a school-based mental health services grant for 2023 through 2028. Every little bit helps, but um, <laughs> that 2.9, <laughs> if you're talking about recruiting, training, and retention, how realistic are you? How optimistic are you that you can achieve some of that? And is there a goal? Is it a goal? Say, look, let's recruit 50 people. Then maybe, you know, we can we can also increase salaries and then maybe we can retain 20 percent. How do you what what's the priority here? There, there is a good, the, the priority um, is um, reaching out, doing, like I said, we're doing various conferences to recruit people, but we're also trying to recruit people to want to go back to school for three years. And that's kind of the big, big thing, because you're going to have to earn your master's and EDS, which is a specialist degree in education, and then do your practicum and an internship with DeKalb County School District. So okay. we're now we're trying to get you the course training, but we're trying to get you the practical training of being a, a practitioner and coming and working in our school district and then coming to work with us. Okay. But then in the meantime, you've got kids, you have a district, right. students and staff that need y'all help now. What are you able to do right now that you can possibly right. see and, an, a, an immediate impact? The immediate impact that we're going to probably more than likely have, um, um, we're going to have interns coming in in the fall, which will help us out. And so we're starting with a small number to come in. And then each year we're adding on to interns and practicum students coming in. And so part of the program is, um, you know, those that are applying to Georgia State, we're sitting on the interview process for seeing um, if they're able to be part of our grant scholarship mm-hmm. or stipend part and to go ahead and get them trained that way it's, it's going to be twofold at the end i'm hoping to get us staffed fully there but i have to give DeCap some additional credit mm-hmm. outside of this grant they did fund additional 12 growth positions for me so um even if people have not graduated and that's part mm-hmm. of my recruitment part going to these various conferences trying to get people to georgia we still have 12 growth positions right now i'm currently funded for 47 psychologists add 12 more to that that will help out and then we're hoping to add 
12 more after that to get us down to two more schools to to mm. to us being able to have two schools apiece. Kimberly, what are we talk, we talked about anxiety and depression that the, some Georgia youth say that that's they experience that. What can you share in terms of what you all are seeing uh, students need and and you can go as young as you need to that that you all are seeing students need help in what areas in terms of mental health? Right. Um, the mental health part, um, they do need help with emotional regulation. Um, students become upset. And a lot of our young kids, they may not know how to explain, I'm feeling this way. Mm-hmm. So we sent, we tend to see those externalizing behaviors where they're screaming, crying, throwing things in the room. And so the regulation part is we're trying to get them under behavioral regulation control and try to help them learn how to express what they're feeling. So that's what we're seeing with the younger kids in the upper layers. You mean uh, elementary? You mean like kindergarten? Right, elementary. Mm -hmm. And so when we get to middle and high school, they're able to vocalize a little bit better, but we, we have to watch closely for those kids who may be withdrawn. They're changing some of their habits just touching base. Um, We find out that when students are connecting with someone in a building, then they feel safe and secure and they're able to um, do well. When those kids that are not connecting, we're we're trying to make sure that we reach out to them. And DeKalb County School District has been very good by putting resources in place. Like we have uh, a a research-based program called Check and Connect, Mm -hmm. where uh, our students, we have somebody in a mentor in a building to check with students who may be academically struggling or getting some behavioral concerns and needing to address those to make sure that we're not losing any of our kids. And um, those are some of the things we put in place. Again, we have the small group counseling that the school psychologists are doing along with some of the social workers in, and the school counselors are doing the, the whole class instructional support. They go into the entire classroom. So we're trying to make sure that we're putting as much in place. We also have um, agencies that are coming in and helping out some schools. So we do mm-hmm. have some mental health agencies that we do have relationships with helping out several schools across the school district. Do you think that there is enough of a spotlight or awareness about what is needed in terms of mental health resources for our youth inside the schools? Now, I know people say that the schools have so much that they have to do beyond the classroom, right. beyond, you know, the kids sitting down at the desk and the educators at the blackboard or what have you. But when you think about how much money is spent, and I'm I'm not going to ask you to get political. I guess I can do that. I don't know. When you think about how much money is put toward other resources, you know, in this nation, and it's just it's not enough, or people just don't quite grasp the severity of what's needed. And and listen, last week we talked about uh, suicide rates among youth, and right. I know that last week there was a, a a young teen that died by suicide in DeKalb County. He was 13, right. 14 years old. Uh, I'm not going to mention the school, but I am aware of that. What do you want folks to know that perhaps if they just don't understand how what a crisis we're at with our youth? And we we are in a crisis, and we as educators also need to be aware of things that are happening in, with kids. And it's for parents. My recommendation would be for parents to make sure they open up their line of communication with their students or their children just so we could kind of see what's happening. Everyone gets really busy. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stress going on in the home setting, but also in the school setting. And sometimes those kids that may have suicidal ideation, they're the quiet ones that we don't always see. Mm-hmm. And they tend to slide in because they're, they're cooperative, they're kind, they're doing the stuff, but they're not interacting with other kids. Mm-hmm. Those are the students that we have to look out for the most because we need to make sure we're offering some additional support for them. And just having general conversations with your students on a daily basis, seeing what's happening, contacting the school. Um, like I said, we have psychologists in the schools. The school counselors are there every day. The psychologists are there once a week and the social workers can come and go also. So there's support needed. Mm-hmm. And, but there are still, we still need more people to come in and help out. It's as much support as we have, we still don't have enough yeah. given the um, concerns that students are experiencing. And, um, there are, and you know, the school is an educational setting, so we're not set up as a clinical setting. Sure. And so um, we have to always remember we have to get can't take too much time from mm-hmm. them receiving the academics that they need, but there is a, a need for additional support. And I want to be clear for our listeners: I'm not saying that that 
that the, the young person that died by suicide that, that occurred at a DeKalb County school. I just know that the, the person was in DeKalb County, and, and so that's why mm-hmm. I made that reference. Kimberly, okay. why do you do this work? Oh, I love it. I've been a school psychologist. I'm going up to 30 years, and um, I got into this because I wanted to make a difference with students. Um, just had a passion about helping students, helping them grow and develop. And this has just been such an awesome field. Um, and so I do this because I want to make sure that I'm sharing my knowledge down to the, the young school psychologists and the future school psychologists that are coming forward so they can continue this profession, continue to come in and advocate for students and to provide that support. So it's, it's just been um, such a great pleasure I'm doing this for the past 29 years. And I have a, a question from a listener again who wants to know how can a parent, if they if they want to at least reach out to you all, is this easily accessible in the schools? Do they know who to call, just go to a principal? How can they reach out? So there's a couple of ways to reach out. Um, of course, you could call my department. Um, I'm, I'm 678-676-1813. That's Psychological Services Department in DeKalb. But each school psychologist is assigned to the school. So the school principal or school counselor, any teachers can can give the name of a psychologist assigned there. But typically when parents call me, I help to find out which school, which like psychologist associated with the school they're trying to reach. And then I build that connection together so that we can offer that support. So we are we're, we're available. But All um right. my phone number they could call here at any time. All right. Kimberly Franklin coordinator for the Psychological Service Department at DeKalb County School District and the president of the Georgia Association of School Psychologists. Kimberly, thank you so much for taking the time on this special day as we looked at mental health resources here in Georgia for adults and youth. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the rest of your day. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Daniel Razel and LaShawn Hudson. Our supervising producer is Tiffany Griffith. Our engineer is Sawyer Vanderworth. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. And we'll have a link to all of the programs we talked about on this program today as well. And remember now, we have a podcast. So subscribe to wherever you like. It's free. shouldn't cost you anything. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Get ready for My Money Mentors, the new WABE-TV financial literacy series hosted by Jacqueline Shadek and Chris Corinthian and produced with support from Delta Community Credit Union. To learn more, visit wabe.org slash mymoneymentors.